You're listening to the Violence Design Lab Podcast, Episode 11. Welcome to the Violence Design Lab Podcast. Now here's the mad scientist himself, David Barefoot. Greetings, David here. Welcome back to the podcast. First of all, some big news that I want to let you know about. By the time this episode airs, the Violence Design Lab podcast will have passed the 1,000 download mark. I've only been live about six weeks, and I want to thank you so much for the outpouring of support that you've shown me from around the world. Seriously, just to take the last episode, it was downloaded from the places you might expect, like the U.S., Canada, Australia, and the U.K., but also places like Iceland, Romania, Japan, and Chile. I mean, the reach of a podcast can be amazing, and and I have big plans to expand and even offer online violence design courses in the future, so watch for that. But all those hosting sites and server space and and software that I need to make this happen, it isn't free, nor is the audio and video equipment that I need to continue creating uh, the content. So I've created a Patreon page to allow those of you who find this podcast helpful to support me continuing to produce it. It takes a, a fair amount of time every week to write, record, edit, and post content week after week to say nothing of all the behind the scenes work for the website and social media marketing. And it's just me here, guys. I don't have a team to support me. So your Patreon support would mean I don't have to add paid advertising into the episodes, and yet I wouldn't be actively losing money for my efforts as I am now. Now, you can pledge as little as $2 a month. It's no more and in some cases less than a cup of coffee a month. Or you can choose a higher support level with more benefits as a thank you from me. So if you're interested in supporting this podcast, head on over to patreon.com forward slash violence design lab and click on a rewards level on the right sidebar. I would really appreciate it. But if you can't support the podcast financially, that's okay. I'm still going to continue giving out the free tips and weekly episodes, short videos, and other thoughts. So if Patreon's not in the card for you, you can still do me a solid and go to iTunes or your favorite podcast site, pull up the Violence Design Lab page, give me some stars, and maybe even write a quick review. That only costs you a couple minutes of your time, and it really helps move me up the rankings so other people like you can find me. And again, thanks so much for listening, and thanks in advance for helping me out. All right, enough advertising. On to the episode. Now, I tend to label myself as a theatrical violence designer. I mean, some people call me a fight director or a fight choreographer or a stage combat instructor or just a swordsman. I mean, I got into this field because I love it, and because people kept remarking that I was a good fighter. I mean, I'm certainly a better fighter than I am an actor, but I digress. But but I'm not a great fighter because I'm the most athletic or acrobatic person, or because I'm tough or have incredible hand speed. Now, the reason I think that I've done well at this game is the same reason that this craft has held my fascination for over 25 years. It's the fight story. Now, people who listen to this podcast tend to have an affinity for history. I mean, many of the theater people who subscribe, they love plays from bygone areas, er, eras, I should say, especially, you know, those with sword fights. And the people from HEMA backgrounds, well, historical is the first word in that title, right? But while most of us are used to imagining ourselves as historical swordsmen and women, There's another historical occupation with a a long and storied tradition that I want to encourage you to take up. 
the Scald, the Bard, the Trouvert or Troubadour. Now, of course, this is the part where my RPG friends roll their eyes and go, I am not playing a Bard, for heaven's sake. They are lame, except back in 2nd edition when they're way over... Stop. Just stop, okay? <laughs> not talking about that kind of Bard. But telling the stories of battles and fights has been around since... Well probably since about an hour after the first battle or fight. I mean, seriously, the pictorial versions of these stories were etched onto cave walls just after we learned to make fire to provide decent lighting indoors. But I'm not suggesting here that you compose a, a chanson de guest or a rite of saga. What I am encouraging you to do is learn to think of fights in terms of stories and to use those stories to learn how to fight better. Now, it's no secret that I'm a theatrical guy, not a competitive martial artist or a fencer, but approaching fighting from the perspective of story has application for both the choreographer and the HEMA practitioner looking to up their game. First of all, humans have a propensity for telling stories like, like no creature on earth. I mean, why do we do it? Well, actually, there's a lot of sociological reasons for it. Entertainment, obviously. Social bonding, self-identity. But, but one of the big motivators of telling stories, and the reason I'm going to focus on today, is that we tell stories in order to learn. Stories make our world make a little more sense. And by crafting and retelling a narrative, we take the, the data that bombards us in the moment, data that's often fragmentary, disordered, overwhelming, and we synthesize that into something our minds can grasp. We distill it into concepts we can analyze, principles we can understand, and, and lessons we can learn. Now, when it comes to fighting, story is everywhere. I want to start by looking at partner drills. The moment you put two fighters together in a training situation, story begins. You thrust and I parry. I cut at your head, you block with your shield. Uh, you punch, I void to the side. These kinds of drills are used in nearly every kind of fight training worldwide and have been for centuries. I mean, most of our HEMA treatises include exactly these kinds of partner drills, yes? But I want you to start looking at these drills like very short stories. And I, I want you to use a literary plot-generating device to help understand them. The word, therefore. You thrust, therefore, I parry. I cut, therefore, you block. Now, this might seem obvious and simple at this level, but it is critical to understanding fighting as a relationship as a story that we are cooperatively telling. My actions affect your actions, which affect my actions, and on and on and on. Now, if the word therefore seems too stilted or formal for you, use the word so. You punch, so I avoid. Okay, whatever. Now, don't stop at generalized words like attack, cut, punch. No, no. Be specific. You cut at my inside high line, so I parry in court. You throw a right jab at my face, therefore I slip it to the outside, etc. So at this level, the level of cause and effect, it, it's important to understand. But it doesn't really teach us anything until we get a bit more granular. Now at the basic level, we take a, a fact about one fighter and use therefore to see how the other fighter responds. But that simple fact of an opponent's action... Well, it's not so simple when you don't know it's coming. You see, in the moment fighting happens, we are bombarded with all kinds of information. 
like where our opponent is, how they're moving, where our weapon is, how we are standing, the lighting, the footing, other bystanders, ambient sounds, all this stuff. We often fail to notice or misread what our opponent is doing. That, that's what the action after, that's when that happens, the action after the therefore usually is, I got hit, right? The opponent deceived my blade and I didn't notice, therefore her thrust landed. Now, when both opponents fail to respond to the other person, that's when we get double hits. So, in order to respond appropriately in a fight, we have to work through the OODA loop theorized by Colonel Jim Boyd. For those of you unfamiliar with that, OODA, O-O-D-A, is an acronym for Observe, Orient, Decide, Act. Without going too far down the OODA rabbit hole, Colonel Boyd basically postulates that when an attack happens, we have to observe the physical clues that are being presented. Hey, you know, his fist is getting bigger. Then we orient or figure out what that means. Oh, his fist is getting bigger because he's punching it toward my face. Then we decide how to respond and then act out that response. Now, for now, we're going to focus on the first two, observe and orient. For simplicity's sake, I'm going to combine them into the single word, notice. Now let's plug that back into our story. I notice you cutting to my chest, therefore I parried in cart. Now, this might still seem obvious, but it reminds us that we need to be constantly looking for markers, for signposts, for indications of what our opponent is doing. This is important when you're doing partner drills because we tend to get lazy. For example, because I know my partner's going to make the same fendente attack every time to start the drill, I tend to shut down my receptors. In other words, I stop looking for the signposts that orient me, that show me what she's doing, and I jump ahead to thinking about my form, the form of my response or whatever, and I skip that notice step. If you want that drill to help you in a bouting situation, you also have to practice actively noticing what is happening in the fight story. Maybe your, your story says, okay, her hands are dropping down from post to Donna, and they're moving forward while her blade is angled high on her right side as she's stepping in, which means she's cutting into Mandrito Fendente, so, or therefore, I then, dot, dot, dot. Observe and orient. Notice. On simple attacks, this seems obvious, but don't skip this step. You want to develop this habit because it becomes critical when opponents' actions are not quite so clear-cut. You see, drills have this annoying tendency to turn into bad choreography. I bet you've seen this happen or, or even experienced it yourself. This is how people leave binds without shutting down counterattacks, or they get by without fully closing off lines of attack, or, or they don't attack on target. Because the actions are scripted, because we know what's going to happen, we get complacent and lazy. Now, why do I call this bad choreography? Because I often see actors doing exactly the same thing, and it drives me to distraction. I mean, we can tell when a fighter is just going through the motion. So if you're a violence designer, make sure your actors are telling the story, too. They need to notice the opponent's actions, or inactions, so that causes them to do their next action. In this case, their, their next bit of choreography. I mean, if they're just doing the choreography because you told them the moves... It'll look like crap, I guarantee it. There's an acting concept called the illusion of the first time, which means that although the actors have rehearsed the same set of moves ad nauseum, for the characters, this is the first and only time they've ever fought this fight. 
So the audience needs to see the characters noticing or observing or orienting each action of their opponent and then reacting appropriately for the story to make sense. I mean, if the actors can tell that the actors themselves or the characters seem to know what's coming, it won't look real. But this kind of storytelling doesn't stop with drills or choreography. It's also very instructive to tell the stories of your live bouts, too. Last year, for her 12th birthday, my oldest daughter, Ellie, took up sport fencing. Since that time, I've spent a lot of time in the salle watching her bout and, and watching her head coach, Justin, train not only student fencers like Ellie, but also more advanced students that he's training to judge bouts. Now, when Justin is working with, with a student judge, he doesn't let him just simply rely on the electric scoring system. He requires them to articulate why the touch was valid or invalid. He requires them to literally articulate every action from both fencers, from the, mo the command to fence, right up to the touch. For example, uh, Ellie fainted to six, but she didn't follow up with an attack, allowing Mary to make an attack on her preparation. Ellie parried in tears and reposted while Mary did a remise with a disengaged cart. Both lunges landed on target, but only Ellie's touch can score because Mary didn't reestablish right-of-way. And he makes them do that for every action. And I was kind of struck by that. And now I bring this up because I find this so instructive to hear the story of the action stated after the fact. I mean, Ellie can review that story and be reminded, don't faint without following up. While Mary might learn that in foil, right-of-way can, can honestly trump hand speed or aggressive attacks. The U.S. Army uh, calls these kinds of stories after-action reports. They've used them since, I think, the Army's been the Army for the same reason, because telling the story of what happened helps you make sense of the chaos and learn. There's a great YouTube example of a fight story or an after-action report done by Bill Grandy, analyzing a bout he had with Guy Windsor at WMAW back in 2009. <clears throat> I'll, uh, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Now, Grandy shows us each action in real time, then he posts a written narrative of what happened, then he replays the action in slow motion. And that's amazingly helpful to look back at about that way. Whether you're a student or an instructor, I highly recommend you videotape your bouts and then practice telling the story of what happened. When, when we're in a stressful moment, it's very common to have literal tunnel vision, to, to miss clues about our opponent and our environment that, that would have allowed us to be successful or, or more successful. And even if you won a particular action, it's very likely that because you're in the moment, there was information you missed. You didn't have the complete story. And sometimes, even when we win an action, we don't know why after we've done it. We just sort of responded instinctively, followed our gut. And that's fine. Fights often happen faster than deliberate thought can keep up. But you have to realize that your instinct is not truly instinct. No one is born you know, knowing how to use a long sword or how to catch wrestle. Not even Oz. And, and those of the people that seem to have these innate impulses that guide them to success, well, they've developed and conditioned their perception, their reaction time, their muscular responses to a level where fight actions occur faster sometimes than conscious thought. Now, in some cases, this conditioning has occurred through experiences that are only indirectly related to fighting, and I won't argue that sometimes this development has occurred subconsciously. 
but I do posit that conscious training will speed up this conditioning process and make you a better fighter faster. Now, I use a five-step method that helps me use fight stories to train. Who knows? These steps might help you too. So, here we go. Number one, state the story. I mean, this one I've been talking about for the last 10 minutes, but it is the critical first step in the process. Writing out or at least retelling the story out loud helps me to process what happened and to look at the moment more objectively. Videotaping and then playing the moment back is what works best for this for me, but it can happen on the spot if you have a third person to watch. But if I one caution, if you're trying to simply remember on your own, you'll be working with the same limited information that you had during the fight, and that, that tends not to be as helpful. Also, I encourage my actors or fighters to speak of both fighters in the third person, even if, well, especially if, you're reviewing yourself. Now, this, this may seem a little artificial at first, but it helps keep the, the personal feelings, embarrassment, or the other emotional hang-ups out of the way and allows us to focus on the work. So we state the story from the command defense until the hit. What happened? Number two, specify the signposts. The signposts, as I mentioned earlier, they're the markers or the visual clues that indicate what a fighter's doing, what attack they're throwing, or if they're off balance, what defense they're planning to counter with, etc. You've got to point these out for each action. Again, sometimes these are going to be very obvious. A Zorn how descending towards your head, yeah, it sends off a pretty clear signal, right? But sometimes those signposts can be as subtle as a, as a weight shift or, or hands tightening on the hilt just before the person strikes. And the more you look for these sign points, the more you're rehearsing seeing them and reading them, and that, then the more you're training your eye to see them and respond during a bout. So specify the signposts. Number three, stage the scene. If time permits, and I grant you it doesn't always, but if it does, I like to pick up the swords again and slowly walk through the actions again, repeating what we did before as exactly as possible. It's like a kind of choreography. This gives me the view of those signposts from the critical first-person perspective. And it also usually reminds me of all the, uh, the places my form went to crap in the moment, but that's another discussion. Staging the scene helps me understand the story kinesthetically and not just visually, and normally gives me some insights on opportunities that I missed in the moment, which I'll come back to. So that is stage the scene, number three. Number four, switch the sides. Uh, sometimes I call it put the shoe on the other foot. I mean, sometimes I wish life was a video game, right? And I could just change the camera angle, but I can't, so I fall back on choreography to help me out. And one great way that it helps me learn from a particular action is to switch sides with my opponent. We use the, the identical actions that we just walked through, but now I play his side and he plays mine. So if I lost the hit before, I get to see what my mistake looked like from the opponent's viewpoint and how he capitalized on that to get the hit. So each time that I see and feel what went into a successful action, some tiny part of that gets tucked away back into my lizard brain. Pack enough of them in there, and your brain will begin to recognize similar pictures in future bouts, and you'll respond and hopefully exploit those opportunities later. And then, of course, everyone will tell you, oh, well, you're a natural fighter, so it's easy for you, right? <laughs> now, if I want to... A particular hit if I got the touch. Playing the losing side of the script gives me a bit of 
different information. Now I can identify some of the signposts or the tells that preceded the action that I took to get the hit. And seeing it from the opponent's viewpoint, I might be able to find places where my attack could have been thwarted or shut down had my opponent noticed the right signposts. And that leads us to the last step. Number five, subvert the success. Now, how many of you out there think there's a that's a perfect move out there, uh, an irresistible attack, uh, an undefeatable parry. I mean, fencing masters throughout the century have claimed to have those kind of techniques, but they're always locked away in secrets so only they know, you know. And we pretty much know that all of that hype was really just marketing. I mean, any attack or parry can be defeated if you know to expect it and you're ready for it. And nearly any attack or defense can succeed if the opponent never sees it coming or isn't in a position to respond, Right. But now that we've worked through the fight story this, at this level, both sides are familiar with what happened. It's now time to empower the fighter that lost the hit a little bit. So find at least one place where the winning action could have been subverted, meaning made ultimately unsuccessful. I mean, this could be a parry, a counterattack, or even as simple as a leap back out of measure. Somewhere in that successful action, even right at its beginning, you'll find a moment when the outcome of the hit action could have been changed and the hit could have been avoided or overcome. And then play out the revised action, which allows the, the losing fighter to avoid the hit or even hit in return. But here's the key. You have to link the new action to a signpost that indicated the action that scored the original hit. In other words, it, it does a fighter in training no good to parry a blow he failed to parry last time just because, well, now he knows what the opponent will do. No, you have to train his eye to see the signposts and his brain to project the story of what's going to happen if he does nothing in order to prompt his new and improved response. Okay, you understand? We, we all make mistakes when we fight. We all have moments of bad form. And opponents can and will try to capitalize on those moments. And the sooner we can recognize, honestly, that our cheese is in the wind, the more time we have to recover or flow to a different action to regain the initiative. So the five steps are state, specify, stage, switch, and subvert. And I know you might be thinking, oh my God, he wants me to do all that work for a single action? An action that won't ever happen exactly that way ever again. And, and I know, I know, it, it's a lot of work. But it is conscious, focused work with clear lessons to be gained. And it trains your brain to think that way. And as you get good at it, your brain will begin to automatically catalog and analyze successful and unsuccessful fight actions as you bout. And you might only do a deep analysis like this of particularly notable actions or, or techniques that seem to regularly get past your defenses. And the fun part is, you can even do this mentally when you're not in the studio. I mean, run scenarios in your mind while you're on the commuter train or waiting for your latte or daydreaming at work. My father was a police officer for nearly 30 years, and he would constantly create and run these physical altercations scenarios in his head. One example he told me about began with him sitting in a parked patrol car writing a report. He often, or in fact all the time, kept the window rolled down to be alert to his surroundings. And his scenario was, what would he do if somebody suddenly reached through the window and grabbed him? And then he'd come up with one or two responses and then he'd subvert the script. Okay, so if the attacker felt my wrist lock coming and slipped out, then what? Or if he punched with his free hand, you know, how would I deal with that? 
Or Dad would, like, change the scenario entirely. What if the guy started by jamming a gun against his head? Now what? And on and on and on. You know what I call that? Choreography. Violence design. Yeah, maybe maybe that's where I get it from. But by playing those potential scenarios over and over in his head, Dad was rehearsing the unrehearsable. He was practicing for something that wouldn't ever happen exactly the way he imagined it, but the visualization gave his brain a habit of noticing signposts and a framework of responses that would be much better than freezing or trying to develop a strategy during an attack. I mean, his mentally rehearsed response might not fit the real scenario exactly, but it made a decent place to start. As General George Patton said, a good plan executed violently right now is better than the best plan tomorrow. (laughs) Now, I know a lot of this episode seems to have been dedicated to the martial artist or the person who does competitive fighting or at least sparring. And the theory of fight stories certainly does have application to the fencing or HEMA world, but it was born from and directly relates to my field of violence design. You see, making up original fight stories on your own, yeah, that, 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 that's all choreography is. That's exactly what I do for the stage. I mean, is there more than making creating fighting moves involved in a great balance design oh sure there's way more but at the end of the day i have to create the fight story and the more accustomed you get to telling these fight stories the easier choreography will come and this is why i continually encourage the hema world to get involved in violence design now you may never have darkened the door of a theater before but you're telling fight stories all the time Learn to understand them consciously and be able to manipulate them. And then you're more than halfway to a great designer because I guarantee your stories will have a greater ring of authenticity than someone who's never crossed blades with someone who's actively trying to hit them. And as for the theater stuff, I can teach that. That you can learn. We can add that on to your fight experience and make you a hell of a violence designer. So, learn to love telling fight stories. Who knows, you you might just make a career out of it like I've done. Now, if you've liked this episode, you can find all of them on the website at violencedesignlab.com. You can also, as I mentioned, support the lab on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash violencedesignlab. You can find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash violencelab. And of course, if you have something to tell me, like a compliment, constructive criticism, question, or even a topic suggestion, you can always email me at violencedesignlab at gmail.com. Once again, thanks for joining me, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Until then, keep the fights on stage and peace in your life. David, out. Thanks for listening to the Violence Design Lab podcast. For more tips, tutorials, and downloadable resources, visit us at violencedesignlab.com. 